Just a few weeks left in Exodus, and we'll be doing 36 and 37 tonight, so let's pray, and then we will jump right in. Lord, we come to you now, and uh, we love you very much. Um, There is no one like you. You are unchanging. You know our needs, and you help us in ways that we can't understand. We could spend lifetime after lifetime after lifetime sitting and pondering on your goodness and we still would only scratch the surface of it. Yet you, in the love that you have shown us in Christ, you reveal yourself to us in a manner where we can really enjoy you. Um, I'm thankful that you are a God who is seated in session, um, always looking out for the well-being of your children always redemptive, always moving your forward kingdom, moving your kingdom forward. And I'm thankful that uh, we don't serve someone who is less than perfect in every single way. Um, Lord, I pray that as we study tonight, um, well, first I confess, uh, just, just with the time change, being tired, worrying about can we even pay attention? It's so late feeling right now. No one's sleeping well. Everyone's sick. I just confess uh, a little bit of doubt and a little bit of worry about how engaged we can be uh, tonight. So I pray that you would allow us each to put that aside and to focus on what it is that you want to show us through the word by the power of your spirit. I pray that we would see uh, the divine power of the Holy Spirit that breaks strongholds and that, that shows us Uh, how to move, how to listen, how to receive the word, and how to walk in it. So Lord, we're thankful for uh, the many ways you bless us. We pray that you would continue uh, to uh, reveal yourself to us and bless us during our study tonight. Uh, Without the work of the Spirit, none of us will leave here changed in the least. And so we are completely dependent upon you. We love you very much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Exodus 36 is where we're going to be. Uh, Bill taught our last uh, session out of Exodus 35. Um, It was wonderful. I'm always blessed when Bill and Morris teach. It just absolutely blesses me. So we're going to go into these next two chapters, and we're going to cover a lot of ground tonight. And I'll probably have a tendency to talk real fast because of the ground I know that we have to cover tonight. I'll apologize ahead of time, but I encourage you to stick in there because there's some really sweet gems in, uh, in this text tonight. The other thing about the text tonight before we dive into it, is that it is largely repetitive. We've already seen almost every single detail that we're going to look at tonight. But that doesn't make it any less important. I was thinking this afternoon about the book of Exodus just in general. It's 40 chapters. About 10 of them, 25%, are given to the details of the tabernacle. God is not superfluous and loose with his words. He includes every detail and repeats particular details for a reason. And so tonight, I will be reading through things where, as you're listening to the details, I want you to, like we always say, climb into the text, import your senses. What does it look like? What does it smell like? What does it sound like? But do that for the sake of understanding God, because God is showing us his will, his purposes in the tabernacle, and he repeats a lot of details over and over. And so there's times where I'm like, well, I'm not not, going to read the text, but then I'm thinking, well, if God chose to, to spend 
25% of the book repeating the details, I think we can spend some time repeating the details for the sake of, of at least hearing them, understanding them, and seeing what the Holy Spirit will do with that. So uh, I'll say that ahead of time. Now, the recap. Israel has been commanded to leave Sinai. Now, originally they were going to leave without God, which was a bad deal. And why were they going to have to leave without God? Say what? Because God said he wasn't going with them. And why would God say such a thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The golden calf, base of Mount Sinai thing was a real bad deal. They, they were headlong into idolatry. They had turned from God. Uh, they had traded the beauty of the creator uh, for something much less, which is creation. They made an idol in the form of a golden calf, which is, you know, if you're frightened by the smoke and the fire and the shaking ground, there's nothing more timid than a golden calf. And if you don't like the way it's looking at you, you, you just kind of turn it around. Um, and that's, that's what they had done. I mean, they had made an idol out of something ridiculous. They were take, taking part in pagan rituals, things that they had observed in Egypt. It was really filthy. And God said, okay, you're going to move forward. It's time to move on from the base of Mount Sinai, but you have to go without me. I'll send an angel with you. And thankfully, what does Moses say? What happens there? Exactly. Moses intercedes on behalf of the people and says, God... I'm not okay with just moving on. I have to move on with you. We are your people. And you see kind of the back and forth between God and Moses where God says, your people who you led out of Egypt, those hard-hearted, stiff-necked people, they've turned against me. And then Moses says, no, God, your people who you led out of Egypt, please don't let us go forward without you because without you, we don't have your safety, your covering. We are not distinct as your people without your presence. And so thankfully, God renews the covenant. So Israel's been commanded to leave Sinai. The covenant has been renewed. Moses' face is shiny. Sabbath regulations have been reiterated again. And it is time to build the tabernacle. That's what we're diving into tonight. The finally, I mean, think about all of the, the time we have spent reading and looking at tabernacle details, hearing what Moses heard from God on the top of Mount Sinai. Tonight, we're going to talk about actually putting your hands to work and building the actual tabernacle. So it's kind of exciting, at least for me. So what is the difference between the tabernacle and the tent of meeting? Yeah, one's on the outside, one's in the center. What else? Yeah. Portable? Yeah, didn't have the Holy of Holies. There, there, was, there was a disconnect between the people and the tent of meeting. It was outside of the camp. Moses would go out there, um, and there would, uh, people, if, if they wanted to worship, they would go to the door of their own tent, watch from a distance as they saw God descending. And now the tabernacle's totally different. It's very intimate. Um, the priests are doing a lot of work. There's so many details that have to do with Christ. There is... Um, your, your sins are covered by the sacrifice and the blood sacrifice and propitiation on an altar. Then there's incense on an altar. It goes up. It's pleasing to the Lord. God is sitting there with Moses. There's so many details of the tabernacle that far exceed the beauty of the tent of meeting because the tent of meeting was sort of a precursor for the tabernacle. So what kind of work is it going to take to build the tabernacle? Skilled craftsmen. Any other details there? Any other? 
Bezalel and Aholiab construction, that's right. What other details do we know? What kind of work it's going to take to build the tabernacle? Yeah, exactly what God said. That's, that's true. Now, who's going to build the tabernacle? We've kind of answered that, but we'll, we'll go with it again. You've already said it. Bezalel, Aholiab, and who? The people who are particularly skilled. That's exactly right. Now, to be clear, is there any part of the work that is left to the discretion of the builders? No. There is no part of the work that is left to the discretion of the builder. They have to do exactly what God said in the way that he said it. You don't get to wing it. You don't get to say, okay, I, I think I have a general idea, God, of what you want from me. I'm going to go and, you know, sort of play with it. You know, massage it. Figure out what's going to happen. Feel it out a little bit. No, no, no. You're going to do exactly what God says in the manner that he says it. So there is no discretion left to the builder in the building of the tabernacle. So Bezalel, Aholiab, and their spirit-filled, artistically gifted crew are about to go to work. So let's read 36, 1 through 7. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the... Look at that. Like, they don't even have the ability to do some work on their own. Any of the work they're about to do is because they've been gifted and skilled by God to be able to do so in such a manner that is pleasing to him. So cool. So, uh, every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, every single guy who was working, Every skilled craftsman goes to Moses and says, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary so the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. This might quite possibly be the first and only time that these words have been spoken by church leadership. Guys, I need you to just stop giving for a little while. We are overwhelmed with resources. Um, that's not the norm. That's not the norm. Uh, a few things to consider. Uh, I laughed the first time I read this, uh, just thinking about the church I grew up in, and we'll go there a little bit later, but like hearing someone get up and say, okay, y'all slow down a little bit. Um, there's lots of work to do. We got an abundance of resources. Just chill out on the giving. Just chill on the giving. Um, just not normal words you hear from any church leadership, yet here in the, in the building of the tabernacle, um, those words were spoken. Now, I want to look at why those words were spoken. What kind of offerings were the people bringing? Free will. Yeah, like Bill said, you should probably circle it. Um, uh, free will offerings. What does that mean? Okay, if it's a free will offering, you're not being forced to bring it, correct? Would we all agree that? Okay, good, I'm glad. Okay, um, so here's the question I want to look at. When I look at this, I'm thinking, man, they gave so abundantly that the leadership had to say, hold up, 
that's too much. Slow down. The workers have a plenty to do with what you've brought. I look at that and I'm like, man, some of the thoughts I have are like, it'd be cool to be that rich. Like, like we just cleaned out Egypt and it'd be so cool to bring so much that they're like, whoa, we, we got too much. The bank accounts are full. We can't, we got a limit and you can't get bring it. Like I've thought, oh, it'd be cool to be that wealthy or, oh, the, you know, how, how cool it would be to set such an example. But what I want to look at is why were they bringing offerings in such a manner? What is their reason for doing that? Worship. Why? Like, it's a good answer, but like, it's sort of like saying Jesus right there. Yeah? True. Absolutely. Why else? Yeah, let's change this whole ten of meeting thing and do what God says. Put him dead center of camp. Boom. Why else? Yes, how many people died with the golden calf? 3,000. That'd be like, that's, that's more death than any of us have ever seen. Like, like, you may have seen someone die, you may have been to a funeral, but 3,000 people dying, that is significant. And then they had to go on by themselves. And what did God do? What did he show to them? Thank you. <laughs> Grace, mercy, love. He renewed the covenant with them. They are bringing their offerings to God in this manner because they are thankful that God has forgiven them and restored the covenant. They're bringing offerings from thankful hearts because they've watched God. They've seen what God has done. They've seen him do it in spite of their own faithlessness and they're moving in faith now. They're responding in an appropriate manner. Now, it's generally always awkward in church when someone in leadership starts talking about giving and money. But my goodness, we cannot skip over that as we're looking at what's happening here with Israel as they're worshiping. It's generally awkward. Most of us have baggage when it comes to money in church. I know that I do. Um, I, I, I grew up at a church, I've mentioned this before, where I think from the time I was born to the time I left at age 23, we were in a building campaign, suffering together for the whole duration of my 23 years at that church. And it was always this, you know, just, we're just gonna suffer together just a little more. And so a lot of us, have, raise your hand if you have baggage when it comes to money in church. Score! Y'all are a redeemed people. Fantastic. Um, I, I'm still working through mine. So we're gonna work, you're gonna do that with me tonight. Work through the baggage. Um, here's what I was thinking. When you look at the way they were giving here, abundantly, the leadership of the church has to stand up and say, Okay, that's two, you guys are enough. No man or woman's gonna bring any more. We got enough. When I see that, and I think about what it's like when someone in leadership begins to talk about money in regards to church, I think, like, if we're looking at it biblically, 
it shouldn't be any different than someone getting up and talking about prayer. It's a privilege. We have that privilege because of Jesus, because of what God has done for us, outside of us, that we can never accomplish on our own. We have the privilege to pray, and, and it's no different than giving. We have the privilege to give. We have to view it in those terms. A lot of times, Christians get caught up in things that have been misstated, things that have been mishandled, things that have just been a train wreck, frankly. And they say, yeah, prayer, good. Giving, don't talk to me about giving, all right? I'll give. Okay, I'll do it. Just, just let me do it on my own. And we kind of have this view of, I just wish everyone would be a little more hands-off on that. But it shouldn't be any different than talking about prayer. We have it. It is a gift. It is a privilege. And it is because of the relationship that we have with God in Christ. So, if you understand the privilege that we have in it, it's not offensive. Turn over to 2 Corinthians 9. 2 Corinthians 9. Just, we're, we're looking at the building, they're finally building the tabernacle. And the resources are so abundant that it, they say, hold on, slow down, don't bring any more. No man or woman should give anything else. We've got enough to do the work and more. There's already abundant provision provided by God from Egypt. So in 2 Corinthians 9, what I want us to see is this. Look at verses 6 through 15. I'm going to read through this, and the question I'm going to ask you after I read this is what do these verses reveal about biblical giving? Okay? That's the question I'm going to ask after I read this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I want y'all to hear in that. That's how Israel was giving when they were building the tabernacle. Not reluctantly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift! Exclamation point. What do these verses reveal about biblical giving? Shouldn't be a burden. What else? God sets the example. How, ex explain that. How does God set the example for us? Yeah. 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 If we're reluctant and we don't take our lead from the Lord, it, I want y'all to picture what it would have been like in the setting of the building of the tabernacle, which is a huge deal. What it would have been like, just picture an Israelite in his tent. Go ahead and zip it. I don't want anyone to see me. With all of his Egyptian treasure, just sitting there in a pile. And 
why don't I just kind of sit on it? Everyone else is given. You're, you got your Egyptian treasure. You're like, oh, man, I got, man we, we made out like bandits when we left Egypt. That, that's what it's like if we're, if we're reluctant to give to the Lord. Now, we may, if we're thinking we're not giving to the Lord, that may cause reluctance as well. But that, that would be as, 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 as wrong of thinking as it would be for that Israelite to close the tent and just sort of hoard the gold that he has from Egypt as though he earned it, as though it's his. It all belongs to God. That, that's one of the key things as we're looking at this. It all belongs to God. So what else do we learn from those verses about biblical giving? Yeah. God will supply what is needed. Do y'all believe that? Because that's hard. God will supply what is needed. I don't know if you've ever had that point where you're like, okay, well, we need to give and we need to eat. Do I believe that God will supply? We need to give and we have to pay the mortgage. Do I believe that God will supply? And faith will be exercised in many, many instances. Some of us are very, very blessed and it's never, some have moved out of the check to check kind of living, some have not. And I ask both of you, do you believe that God will provide what's needed? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When someone says it'll just work out, God's in control of math, um, it will make you mad. It made me mad the first time. I was like, yeah, yeah. Simple mathematics. Like, I know God's on it, and I believe God's. And, and I, I add these things, and it doesn't work. And, and, and until you've been on the end of seeing God just provide ridiculously abundantly, um, uh, it, it is hard to believe. But, but you walk in faith, not by sight. And that's what makes it difficult. But God absolutely provides uh, for his children. And a lot of times he does that through the church. What else do we learn about biblical giving from those, those verses? Cheerfully. Cheerfully. Now, once you get to that point of giving... Cheerfully is, is the, is, I mean, sometimes it's, I mean, reluctantly writing the check. Um, okay. Uh, and there, there's a cheerfulness that God expects. Why would God expect cheerfulness? It's his money. Yeah. That's one way to think of it. Why else would God expect cheerfulness? Yeah. Yeah, it's from the heart, and, and, and our hearts are responding to what? That's what Bill said earlier. What he's done for us, that's why it's joyful, because it has everything to do with Jesus. If it just has to do with me bucking up and writing the check, that's not really a joyful thing. But if it has to do with me saying, you know what? God in Christ has provided all that I've needed, not just financially and, and like physically, but, but spiritually and eternally. Of course, I want to honor him with every resource that I have. I don't want to just allot a little piece to him. I want to honor him with all of it. And that's where the joyful giving comes in because you see the abundant provision that he's provided for you. It is no different for us today than it was for the Israelites at the contribution of the tabernacle. We are privileged to be in a covenant with God in Christ. And it is our privilege to give abundantly to the specific opportunities that God has given us in ministry. Why are they giving? Because God's given them opportunity. It has everything to do with their relationship with him. And just like he did for the Israelites, God has provided abundantly for us. 
and everything that we have belongs to him. So we give from hearts affected by the grace of God. Therefore, it needs to be cheerful and joyful. Now, I want to take a moment to encourage the body. Every October, we spend time as finance team uh, and, and through elders and staff, and we look at all of our finances and we look at the details and, and we, we work through the upcoming year, uh, the budget for the upcoming year, the operating budget for 2013. So that's what we've been doing a lot in October. There have been people behind the scenes doing that, um, particularly uh, Aaron Adele, Jeff Willingham, and Nathan Green on our finance team who have been working very, very hard um, uh, with oversight, uh, pretty specifically from Brad. And we look at every detail, every line item. We look at what we have. And I want to encourage the body that over 85% of the body is given consistently and sacrificially. It's 80 to 85%. And that's the way it's been for a few years now. And that is so encouraging because there's, there's a norm in churches, sort of pattern that you can just look at and observe where usually 10% of the people give 90% of the money. And what we've seen here at Crosspoint is just really wonderful, beautiful, awesome faithfulness where 80 to 85% of the body is giving consistently and sacrificially. And that has allowed us to do um, some really wonderful things. It's not just about buildings, but it's about ministry. It's about reaching out. It's about ministering to children. It's about um, having resources for families each week. It's about planning things that are good and fruitful eternally. It's about providing water wells in another country. It's about a number of different things. It's about caring for orphans and widows and their affliction. All these things that the Bible tells us to do, we're able to do that because within the body, we have the resources to do that. And so I want to commend the body tonight. I want to commend you that that's good. Y'all are moving faithfully in that. And and if you're part that's not moving faithfully, I encourage you to step out in faith and do that. And if you are moving faithfully, continue in it. Because it's good for the body and it's pleasing to the Lord. Does anyone feel awkward yet? Because it should be worship. It should be good. This is a positive, pleasing thing. So, turn back to Exodus. Back to Exodus 36. If... The people are bringing free will offerings morning by morning, which is like the fresh mercies of God. The mercies of God are new every morning. If the people are bringing offerings in such a manner, what must be characteristic of the builders and the workers? <coughs> uh-huh. Yes. Attention to detail, specificity. I love those two phrases. Specificity is one of my favorite words, specifically. And then um, attention to detail. Yeah, yeah, those, those, are, those are very important for the, for the workers and the builders. What else must be characteristic of the builders and the workers? Inventory control. Yeah, yeah. What else? Sure, yeah, a little more gold on the top, a little more silver on the lining. No, they didn't have license to do that. All right, so what else? What else must the builders and the workers be? Working together, same team, clear direction. Objectives are, have been set out for us by the Lord. We're going to do that. Okay, what else must they be? Bezalel? I don't know. It was close. <laughs> Bezalel and Oliab. 
Yeah, yeah, they have to be submissive to the leadership that God has put in place to lead them in that specific manner. Okay, what else must the workers and builders be? Wise-hearted. What do you mean by that? <laughs> oh, man. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, a prerequisite. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Willing to do it the right way, not going to cut corners, going to clearly do what God has commanded. What else must they be? Yeah. Yeah, that guy's going to get punched in the nose. This is a worshipful moment, and you can't be the grumbler who wants the attention. Yeah, absolutely, not grumbling. I, I, I mean, we're dancing around it. In a Baptist church, we're, we're still Baptists. I figured we, we, we would have said this, obviously. They're bringing gold and silver by the pile and the truckload. What must the builders be? Honest, trustworthy. I don't want to hand that kind of dough over to swindlers and schemers who have proven themselves untrustworthy. Church leadership, the builders, the, the workers, those who have been appointed to the different ministries, it doesn't matter what it is. It's not just elders and it's not just deacons. It's anyone in any ministry. Children, I want whoever is working in the green room with the crayons to be a good steward with the crayons. Now you're, you're thinking, all right, you're crazy. You are crazy. No, we're to be good stewards. The guys who do the sound do stuff. Cody and, and Jake, and, and we, we talk through, what do we need? Well, we need new lights. Okay, well, what, can we, what do we need to look at? Do we need to upgrade? Okay, well, if we do, what's reasonable? What do we have in our budget? We have to be good stewards, and we have to be trustworthy. Because if it's just, hey, we're going to give you like $40,000. Is that cool? Yeah, that's cool. Okay, good. That's not moving in a manner that's good stewarding and trustworthy. We have to pay attention to detail. Inventory control, like Patrick said. There's a lot of things. We have to be trustworthy. We have to be good stewards. There has to be clear plans. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. The, we, we're not going to let deacons go count the offering that we think he might steal it. <laughs> we're not going to do that. We're going to steer clear of that. Um, so, um, and there's always two of them. And they don't know about all the cameras either. So, um, so yeah, there's, there's plans so that we can be good stewards, so that we can be uh, faithful in the details. Um, and, and so here there has to be clear plans. Now, how would you define good stewardship in this scenario? Because that's something that's hard to define, good stewardship. How, do, how are we winning? How, how is this a good thing? How is this successful? What's good stewardship? Godly? What does that mean? Christ's sake. <laughs> Can anybody give me a more vague answer, please? No, I want, sure. Give me an example. Okay. That is a good place to start. In the, in the scenario of building the tabernacle, what is, what is good stewardship? Yes. Specificity. Yes. Doing what you're supposed to do with what you have. I wrote, are they doing what God has said with the money that's been given by God's people? Are you doing what God has said? With the, so, 
this is how we define good stewardship today. Are we doing God's work with God's resources? Because if we're not, if, if we're just like, Imagine what it would be like if we just went to a meeting and said, what do you think, what do you think, what do you think? And we end up, we decide we want a, a million dollar organ and a really cool fountain with an angel. So what? What have we got the money for it? Well, are we doing what God says? Are we going to the word and saying, what are we supposed to be about? So are we doing God's work with God's resources? Um, we'll come back to that in a few minutes. So now that the resources are in place, I want you to look at what happens next. I'm going to read aloud verses 8 through 38. Look what happens next. All the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with tin curtains. They were made with fine twined linen, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns with the cherubim skillfully worked. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits, and the breadth of each was, was, curtain was four cubits. All the curtains were the same size. I don't want cattywampus curtains. I want them the same size. He coupled five curtains to one another, and the other five curtains he coupled to one another. He made loops of blue on the edge and on the outermost curtain of the first set. Likewise, he made them on the edge of the outermost curtain on the second set. He made 50 loops on the one curtain. He made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain and that on the, in the second set. The loops were opposite one another, and he made 50 clasps of gold and coupled the curtains one to, another, to the other with the clasp so the tabernacle was a single whole, one Peace, oneness in the tabernacle. He also made curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. He made 11 curtains. The length of each curtain was 30 cubits. The breadth of each curtain, four cubits. The 11 curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains with themselves, by themselves, and six curtains by themselves. And he made 50 loops on the edge of the outermost curtain of one set and 50 loops on the edge of the other connecting curtain. He made 50 classes of bronze to couple the tent together that it might be a single whole. And he made for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and goat skins. Then he made the upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits was the length of a frame and a cubit and a half to the breadth of each frame. Each frame did, had two tenons for fitting together. He did this for all the frames of the tabernacle. The frames uh, for the tabernacle he made thus 20 frames for the south side. He made 40 bases of silver under the 20 frames. Two bases under one frame for its two tenons and the two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. For the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, he made 20 frames and their 40 bases of silver. Two bases under one frame and two bases under the next frame. For the rear of the tabernacle westward, he made six frames. He made two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear and they were separate beneath but joined at the top at the first ring. He made two of them this way for the two corners. Then there were eight frames with their bases of silver. Sixteen bases under every frame, two bases. He made bars of acacia wood. Five for the frames on the one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames on the other side of the tabernacle and the five bars of the frames in the tabernacle of the rear westward. And he made the middle bar to run from end to end, halfway up the frames. And he overlaid the frames with gold and made their rings of gold for holders, for the bars, and overlaid the bars with gold. He made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen with each cherubim skillfully worked into it. He made it. And for it, he made four pillars of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. Their hooks were gold, and he cast for them four bases of silver. He also made a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue, for the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework and its five pillars with their hooks. He overlaid their capitals and their fillets were of gold, but their five bases were of bronze. How would you summarize what I just read? Detail. A lot of detail, which means a lot of what? Work. What I just read is a lot of work. Now, the reminder for us here is that abundant provision still requires a lot of work. 
Abundant provision still requires a lot of work. When we set a, a budget for the upcoming year, if it's more than the previous year, I don't ever think, oh, less work. It's not how it works. Abundant provision requires a lot of work. Too often, too many of us buy into the lie that somehow a lot more money and a lot more resources would just eliminate all of our problems. I believe it was the late notorious B.I.G. who aptly stated, mo money, mo problems. Or in our case, or in our case, abundant resources will always mean more work, not less. But that's a good thing. Why is that a good thing? Because what kind of life are we called to as Christians? Well, as Christians, we're called to lives of work with seasons of rest. Some of us get that backwards. We think, okay, I'm called to a life of rest with these seasons of work. I wish you were right. I would love to get on that bandwagon. But biblically, that's not what we're called to. God sets the pattern for us in creation. Six days of work, one day of rest. We're generally called to lives of work. Work hard. This life matters. It matters. And how you spend it matters. So we're called to lives of work with seasons of rest, not the other way around. So, um, another thing I want us to see from this chapter is that a clear account is given for the command as well as the response to the command. A clear account is given for the command as well as the response to the command. What I mean is, in chapter 25 of Exodus, we see details about the tabernacle. It goes through about chapter 30. Then we have some details of Mount Sinai. And then here we're coming back, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40, to details of the tabernacle. Lots of details clearly given for the command, which is what we saw first in 25 through 30, and then for the response to the command. Now, why do you think the details are important to God? I'm asking the same question in 50 different ways tonight. God's a God of detail, okay? It requires obedience. Yes, when we worked through those five chapters, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, and 30, what we found was that every detail pretty much says something about Jesus. And when Jesus came on the scene, you could look back at the tabernacle. And when it says in John 1 that he came and tabernacled among us, we, we understand something more about the tabernacle when we look at Jesus tabernacling among us. We look at the lampstand, which is mentioned in 37, and we know that Christ is the light of the world. John the Baptist in, in John 1 proclaiming the true light, which enlightens everyone. The details matter. We see the table with bread, and we know that when we go to this table every Sunday, we, we see that it is, it is our, our, Christ is our, our sacrifice, our propitiation. He is the reason that we're considered clean. So we partake of his body and his blood. We do that in remembrance of what he did, and it goes all the way back to the tabernacle. We see um, the, the ark, and we see God's dwelling with man in this close proximity, and we see his glory on display, and we see that there's no veil there now for those who are in Christ. The veil's been torn away. Second Corinthians 4 says that um, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You can think of Moses' face shining when, when you look at those details. So every detail here is important. Now, if details are important to God, what else about the details might be important? God says, here's 10 chapters of the 40 with details. The details are important. What else would that mean is also important about the details? 
Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Absolutely. And where's God's dwelling place today? In us. So can we just freestyle how we live and, you know, hope for at least a 50-50? We can't, we can't just weigh it out like that. We have to be specific in the details of the way we're living. Now, um, if the details are important to God, I'm thinking how they're communicated, what's recounted, those are details. That, that's going to be important to him as well. So we can't play fast and loose with the scriptures. That's why we don't get up and preach and say, read obscure verse, here's what I think. We don't do that because we have to be true to this word. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for reproof and correction and training and teaching that the man of God would be equipped, like competent, for the good work that God puts before us. So this is why how the details are communicated, how they're handled, how, how you might lead people to respond in them um, is very, very important. That's why everything we do at Crosspoint is guided by the word. You won't find any meetings where we just sit around and simply talk about what we think. We don't just have meetings and sit and what do you think? What do you think? Ministering to children, what do you think? What do you think? We don't do that. It's a waste of time. Rather, we make it a practice to go to the Word and see what it says. This is how we've made the decisions about how we minister to children. This is how we've made decisions about how we minister to young adults and everybody else. This is how we have made decisions about how we spend money. This is how we have made decisions about our leadership structure. You know, it's not traditional that there's a elder leadership at churches. It's not, that's not tradition I grew up under. We had like 110 deacons, and it was very confusing. I didn't really know who was doing stuff. And I think there was a chairman somewhere that was like the wizard behind the curtain. I'm not real sure. Um, but we go to the word and we say, this is what we're going to do for, for our leadership structure. And ultimately, the details are important because they are going to reflect the character and the will of our God. If someone says to me, why do we do it like that? I should have a biblical answer for you. If you have a question about our Wednesday night structure, if you have a question about our Sunday morning structure, if you have a question about the way we lead worship and song, if you have a question about the way that we baptize in our fancy trough, y'all see that over there? I solved the problem. Bam, you see that? All right. Um, it's a little bigger when you bring it inside, so I was a little surprised by that. Um, so if you have questions about the way we baptize, if you have questions about why we have small groups and not Sunday school, if you have questions about all those things, you need to ask someone who's an elder, a deacon, small group shepherd, just a member of the church, and what we should be able to give to people is biblical answers, not just, well, I think, fill in the blank. We give biblical answers for the way we walk. 
we get biblical answers to the way our, the expectations we have in families. So, um, um, Psalm 9. I, I think I'll close with Psalm 9. Turn to Psalm 9, please. In these two chapters, we've seen just a ton of detail. And we, we see people doing things. Like, we would not know who Bezalel and Aholiab were if someone hadn't written it down. We would not know about the skill. I mean, when you think of them making the ark and making the table and overlaying these things with gold and all those little loops and then the loops that have the clasps that hold the curtain and the curtain with the fine twine linen and then you see the bases, the silver bases and the poles that go up and it goes across and you got that base deal and you got like 20 of them on this side and then you got the westward entrance and you got all these things. Like, we wouldn't know any of that if someone didn't recount those details. God ordained it that when Moses went to the top of Mount Sinai, he would hear things from God, know things from God, and he would recount them and write them down to where he would not just say, God wanted us to build a tabernacle, so we had to do it, and we had to be specific. God wanted him to include all the details, and then he wanted him to go back and include the details about how it was done because what it did is it's showing obedience and showing God saying, this is my character, this is my will, this is my purpose for my people. I'm gonna dwell among you. I'm gonna tabernacle among you and you're gonna understand that, that my relationship with you is eternal and it's very significant, but, but sinners don't approach me in particular ways. Sinners don't approach me without a sacrifice. The only people who approach me without a sacrifice are those who are sinless. And, and, and what that sacrifice is, is it has to be the blood of an innocent. And, and when that blood spilled, there, there's, there's a propitiation. And the wrath that I had towards you goes over here. And then there's worship over here. There's this altar of incense and it's ple- All the details have to be included because they reflect how God is with his people. Psalm 9, verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I'll be glad and exult in you. I'll sing praise to your name, O Most High. According to that verse, to truly be wholehearted in worship, you must recount the deeds of the Lord. I want us to move in that manner. When we, the same way that Moses recounted Bezalel and Aholiab and the skilled craftsmen, and like, yeah, God said these loops and these clasps and these curtains, and these, God said that, and guess what they did? They did the loop and the clasp and the curtain and the fine twine linen. And then God said bases over here made of silver, with the, and guess what they did? They did bases made of silver. I want y'all to pay attention to what people are doing around you. I want our worship to be wholehearted. I want us to be able to recount the deeds of the Lord as he is accomplishing them through his children, because that's an act of wholehearted worship. Lots of stuff in this text tonight. Next week, we're going to look at the next two uh, uh, chapters. And uh, we're getting close to the end. And we're going to see the actual tabernacle um, put up and, and put in place. So let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we love you very much. Um, I am so thankful for the recounting that we have in the scriptures from inspired writers, um, from particularly here what we're looking at with Moses and how he, he was uh, led by you to, to write specifics and that we can worship in those specifics because we know our God is a God of details. Lord, for those of us who worry about the details, I pray that we would have a calm about us tonight that comes from the word that Spirit led, that we can look at this and say, you know what? God has always been about all the details, and I think I can trust him with every detail of my life. So for those of us who are prone to anxiety, prone to worry, I pray that we would be comforted by your word, where we see a God who is all about the details, and who leads his children to be about details. Lord, for those of us in here who are lazy and procrastinators and don't like order and don't like structure and 
um, maybe think that the expectation is low from you. Um, my prayer is that you would challenge us to, to make sure we're not taking liberties that we shouldn't be taking, but that we're being true to the word, that we're being good stewards of our time and of our resources, and that we are giving ourselves as an act of worship to, to be poured out as, as you see fit. Lord, this scripture will speak to different people in different ways, and I'm so thankful that we don't have to orchestrate that, but that we, we communicate it clearly, as clearly as we can, and that the Spirit leads out and, and shapes and forms, and that there is power that, um, that breaks bonds and that leads us in, in faithful um, kingdom movement. We love you, Lord. We thank you for that. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.